to deal with the church today. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 31. And if you will, please stand for the reading of the word of God. And the word of God reads, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we we have received the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a coming, common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who sent, said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You may be seated. Today, it seems that even those who profess to be Christians are moving further and further away from the biblical place, the biblical view of the local church. We say, well, I'm part of the universal church. But is that what scripture teaches? Is that true? Yes. The church is universal from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But when we go through scripture, we go all the way back to the beginning, 
with the children of Israel. And there was a local place that they were to come to offer their sacrifices, to worship. We move on. We get to the temple. We move on. We get to synagogues. Throughout scripture, we see that God has a place. He wants his people to meet, to worship. The whole New Testament is written to local churches. The books, there are a few in there that aren't to a church necessarily, but they're to the pastor of the church or to a member of the church. The book of Revelation to seven local churches. I would go as far as saying it's impossible to be an obedient Christian without a proper view and commitment to the local church. Now, you may be saying, well, I'm here today. I'm not the one that needs to hear this. Well, I know I was greatly helped by just engrossing myself in these things. So I pray that you will be too. But I want you to consider two things. First of all, you may be here, but is your commitment, is your view of the church perfect? And all of us would have to say no. And has not God ordained us to be here, to hear this word for our good, for our sanctification? But also, I'm sure many of you have friends that profess to be Christians, but they do not have a commitment, a biblical view to the local church. I want you to be equipped. I believe the Lord would have you be equipped to go to them, to bring them the truth. And as we'll see today, the danger that they are actually exposing themselves to. So today, I believe the Lord would have us look at a desperate commitment to the local church. And I'm very intentional with those words, a desperate commitment. It's easy to get into a pattern, a habit. Well, this is what I do on Sundays. This is my Christian duty. But are you desperately committed to the local church? And that's what I believe the Lord would have us to deal with today. So I want to give four reasons that we should be desperately committed to the local church. And we should not, as we see here in verse 25, we should not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. First of all, because forsaking the local church is forsaking the very thing Jesus Christ died for. Secondly, forsaking the local church is walking in disobedience. Thirdly, forsaking the local church is actually a manifestation of our pride. And lastly, forsaking the local church is a very dangerous thing. You know, many times, when we deal with sin issues, we only deal with the fruits. Oh, they're not going to church. That's a sin. We're going to deal with the, the fruits, but we never get to the root. 
And actually, I was, as I prepared, I was originally going to preach from a passage in Ephesians. But then I realized, well, we're, we're dealing with the, the fruit of it, but let's go down to the root. And the root really comes down to this, a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and our responsibilities which flow out of it. So let's look at that one at a time. So first of all, forsaking the local church is actually forsaking the very thing Jesus Christ died for. As we see in verse 19, it begins, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, what's he consecrated for us? Through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Now, when we come to a therefore, it is connecting something. It's connecting a truth to an application, how we ought to live. But notice here, in verse 19 starts, therefore, but we don't get a let us, something we are to do to verse 22. So what's going on in between? I mean, it could say, therefore, let us draw near, so on and so forth. But that's not where it goes. So what he's doing is giving us four statements that kind of sum up everything he's been teaching us. It's kind of similar to what Paul does. After 11 chapters in the book of Romans, he's just laid out all this truth. And then in chapter 12, he says, therefore, by the mercies of God, looking back to those truths, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And that's what we see here. So he's saying, therefore, and he's going back to what he's taught. And this should be the root, the foundation of our commitment to the local church. It's the work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at those four statements briefly. So it says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, it's, it may be hard for us to imagine today or to put ourselves in that place, but to the Jew, if you were to put boldness with entering into the most holy place, they would think you're absurd. They would think something is mentally wrong with you. How can you enter into the presence of a holy God with boldness? A God whose eyes are too pure to behold evil. A God who, who can, even Job tells us, he can charge the angels with error. The heavens are impure in his sight. It's as if the moon refused to shine. The stars are impure. How can we have boldness coming into his presence? Back in chapter 9, speaking of this, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, into the second part, the second part of the tabernacle called the holiest of all. He said the high priest entered once a year alone, not without blood, which he would offer for himself and for the sins the people committed in ignorance. So the high priest has to offer a sacrifice for himself. You say, well, 
He can go in boldly then. His sins have been taken care of. No. The writer of Hebrews continues. He says, the Holy Spirit was indicating the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle still stood. He said, it was just symbolic for the present time where both gifts and sacrifices were offered which could not make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. See, the high priest could go in there. He offered his sacrifice. But he still got a guilty conscience. He cannot go in to the presence of God boldly because he knows all he's done is kill an animal. He still has a problem. In chapter 10, he says, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the law having only a shadow and a copy of the good things to come, not the very image of them, could not by the same sacrifices offered year by year make those who approach perfect in regard to conscience. Because if they could, they would have ceased to be offered. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the high priest, the holiest, you can say, of all the congregation of Israel. On that one day a year, he gets this great privilege to go into the holiest of all. But he has a guilty conscience. So how can we enter in boldly? Are we better than that high priest? Not at all. See, in chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews continues and he says, but Christ came as a minister of the good things to come. And not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, he entered into the holiest of all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean for the purifying of the flesh, he says, how much more for the blood of Jesus? who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. So how can we have boldness to go into the presence of God? It's because the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience to serve the living God. Amen. Secondly, he says, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us. See, the high priest had a problem. They were men, and as men, they would die. In chapter 7, he says there were many high priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But since he, Jesus Christ, since he remains forever, he has... In eternal priesthood. And he says, therefore, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to make an obsession for them. He always lives to pray for them, to stand in the gap. Jesus Christ. Ever wondered why he had to rise? He is the new 
and the living way to God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Then we see, he says, through the veil that is his flesh. See, when Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, when his flesh was ripped, so to speak, the veil of the temple was ripped, signifying that access to God is now opened up. It goes back to the blood of Jesus Christ. When his blood was shed, the curtain was ripped, and now we have access to God. We have access to God through the one he tells us in chapter 4. It says, our high priest who has passed through the heavens, even Jesus, the Son of God. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but when tempted in every way, we are yet without sin. Therefore, we can come boldly, there it is again, boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find help in time of need. Lastly, he says, and having a high priest over the house of God. There's one other place in the book of Hebrews that this kind of language is used. Now, if there's anyone greater than the high priest, it was Moses. And in chapter 3, after the writer of Hebrews gives us all of these lofty things about Jesus Christ and then brings it down, says the one that was so much better than the angels for a time became lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And in chapter 3, he says, therefore, says, therefore, brethren, partakers of this heavenly calling, consider our apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. But he says, but this one is worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house receives more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. See, Moses was a part of the house of God. But Jesus Christ, the high priest, he is the God-man. He is the God that built the house. The writer of Hebrews continues and he says that Moses was faithful as a servant in all his house. But Christ as a son over his own house. That's the language we see here. High priest over the house of God. So our high priest isn't just serving in the house of God. Our high priest is over the house of God. He owns the house. This is the work of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just for a, a bunch of people to be saved and just become a part of the universal church. No, we see he goes immediately into an exhortation to the local church. Jesus Christ died to establish local churches. This is how the apostles, they always understood it. What happened when Jesus ascended to heaven? The 120 meet, they're praying, 
The Holy Spirit comes down. Peter preaches a sermon. 5,000 people were saved. Then he said, well, now you're Christians, you're part of the universal church. That's, that's not what happened. They assembled together in a local church. Giving themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer. And even went house to house, breaking bread, fellowshipping with one another. So a local church, then they go and break it down to house to house and local meeting places. And then they went out from there. When there was persecution, they spread. They went out and started local churches. This was the teaching of Jesus Christ as the apostles understood it. This was the teaching as the apostles as the early Christians understood it. Jesus died for the local church. So forsaking the local church is forsaking the very thing Jesus Christ died for. But secondly, forsaking the local church is walking in disobedience. Now we're not going to look at every word in these next few verses. But notice three times, verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider one another. So, we get the work of Christ, and now we're exhorted. He gives us three things. We are to draw near. This has to do with drawing near to God, which is only through Jesus Christ, which is what we just looked at. Drawing near and worship in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 10. There are two priests, Nadab and Abihu. They wanted to worship in the way they wanted. God sent down fire. And this is what God said. He says, by those who draw near to me, I must be regarded as holy. We draw near to God in our worship. We draw near to God in our prayers. We draw near to God even through obedience, through humility, as James teaches us. So we are to draw near. We are to hold fast. Hold fast as we see the confession of our hope, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, holding fast to the faith in Him. And we are to consider one another. So Jesus died to establish the local church. If we reject that, we're not only rejecting what Christ died for, but we're walking in disobedience. Now, these three verses here, they are not imperatives, a command. They are actually subjunct subjunctives. But it carries the same force. Because a sub subjunctive is simply something we ought to do. We ought to do this. If you are a Christian, this is something we ought to do. We ought to draw near, not individually. Yes, that is necessary. He's speaking to the local church. We ought to draw near to God as a church, as a body. We ought to hold fast to Christ as a church, as a body. And we ought to consider one another as a church and as a body. 
which brings us to the third reason. Forsaking the local church. It's not only forsaking the very thing Christ died for. It's not only walking in disobedience, but it's actually a manifestation of pride. If you look at verse 25 and 26, it says, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So see, when we forsake the local church, I'm not talking missing a day here, there. there there's various reasons we cannot make it. And I'm not condemning you at all. I missed church about a month ago for our anniversary. I'm not condemning that. But I'm saying, those who make this their custom, their manner, their habit to forsake the local church, it's a very prideful thing. Because they're basically saying, I don't need to be stirred up to love and good works. I'm good on my own. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need to be exhorted. I'm good. I can exhort myself. I mean, I just go to YouTube, listen to a sermon, I'm good. But no, it's a very prideful thing. We think that's enough. See, yes, if you are a Christian, no one can snatch you out of his hands. He will preserve and conform, confirm you to the end. Yes, that is true. We know those promises. But he has means by which he does what he does. And one of those means is the local church. So what we see here, when he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, this was something I found very interesting as I studied it. That word, stir up, is actually only used twice in our scriptures. The other time it's used in the end of Acts chapter 15, when Paul is in an argument over bringing John Mark. And it said, it got so serious that they parted ways. That's when the word is used. This word literally means to irritate, to provoke. You know, many times as Christians, we have this mindset, you know what, yeah, I, I have my sins, but you, just leave me alone. Just leave me alone, I, I'm okay, I, I know it's wrong. Okay, I get that. Just, just, just back up a little bit. Stop judging me. But that's actually a manifestation of pride. We need that. We need to come to one another. Now, not unlovingly, of course. But I guess you can say to wholly irritate one another. To, if some, one of us is in sin, we don't just, oh, well, I said something, now it's between them and God. No, we need to be persistent out of love, out of care for them. And, in a sense, irritate, provoke them to respond. You say, well, God has to do the Yes, he has to do the work. But as I said, he works through means. We are to continue 
to go forward. If I am in sin, if any of us are in sin, it is our responsibility to go to one another and to say, I see this in your life. Scripture says this. We even see that with Jesus taught in church discipline. You go to your brother. He doesn't just say, go to your brother in secret. And if he doesn't hear you, say, well, I just wash my hands of it. I, I, I told him his sin. He doesn't want to listen. Okay, if he perishes, he perishes. I did my job. Like the watchman in Ezekiel, oh, his blood's not in my hands. No. That's not what Jesus says. He says, then take two others with you, one or two others with you. Then go to the church. There's a process. We continue to move forward and deal with that sin. Knowing that that sin could cause your brother to perish, to go to hell. And out of love, out of concern, we continue to attack. Not our brother, not our sister, but that sin. So it says, stir them up to love and good work. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another. This word exhort. It means to come alongside someone, to call them to something. It could be positive, it could be negative. But to, we should come alongside one another. We, we shouldn't just come here and meet. Say, how are you doing? Let's worship the Lord. Okay, bye. See you next week. No. We come alongside one another. We do life together. Even outside the church. This is Speaking only of once a week. The assembling of ourselves is much more than that. Yes, this is the main one. But we should assemble even throughout the week. We should do life together. Come alongside one another. Call each other to a certain behavior. Call each other to holiness. Call each other to repentance. Call each other to faith. In light of this, as he says, we should do this so much more as we see the day approaching. Jesus Christ's return. No one knows the day, nor the hour, nor the season, but we are to be ready. And we are to get one another ready for that day. But lastly, not only is forsaking the local church, forsaking the very thing Jesus Christ died for, not only is forsaking the local church walking in disobedience, not only is forsaking the local church a manifestation of pride, but lastly, forsaking the local church is a very dangerous thing. Look at verse 26. And notice, it begins with the word for. That's a connecting word. It's not starting a new thought. It's giving us a reason for what's come before. You can translate because. So why should we have this desperate commitment to the local church? Because, verse 26, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, what truth? The truth 
that we looked at in verse 19 through 21 about Jesus Christ. That's why it is so important, not just to go to church, but to go to the church that teaches the truth of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Not this, oh, you can have him as Savior or not. There is no such thing. He is Lord. And he says, if anyone should come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow me. He says, you seek to save your life? You want to live for yourself? You're going to lose your life eternally. He says, but you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. This is Jesus Christ. He is king. He is master. He is Lord. And we are his slaves. This is the truth. So if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. In other words, you hear the truth of Jesus Christ, you receive that truth, and you say, I choose my sin. Doesn't matter what that sin is, you say, I choose my sin. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins. In other words, you can't be saved if you reject that truth. As he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There is no other way. You reject Christ, you go to hell. He is our only hope. He is the only way. It's not the Jesus you want to make up in your own mind. We cannot create our own Jesus. He does not say. I preached that Jesus for over a decade before I got saved. That Jesus did nothing for me. Left me in my sin. Left me a slave to my sin. I was helpless. But there was a Jesus who saved. If you receive the knowledge of the truth of that Jesus, and you say, I want my sin, there's no longer a sacrifice for you. There's nothing to cover your sins. There's nothing that can cleanse your conscience so you come boldly into the holiest. I praise God for this church. After I got saved, I went from church to church to church to church all of them have their own version of Jesus, their own version of God. Well, most of them. I praise God for this church. For our elders, Jeff and Sean, who faithfully preach the biblical Jesus. So let's receive the knowledge of that truth and let us not sin willfully. Remember, we have a responsibility to one another. If you see your brother, if you see your sister who has received the knowledge of the truth, choosing their sin, you go to them. They are in great danger. If they are going to choose their sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for their sin. As James says, if any of you goes astray and one restores that brother, know that he has saved his soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. He continues and says, 
This is what remains, verse 27. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. You choose your sin over Jesus? There's only one thing that remains for you. It's not a sacrifice. It's not, oh, let us sin that grace may abound. I mean, God forgives. God's gracious. I can live in my sin. It's covered anyway. No. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but this is what remains. A certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. You know, we often think of an adversary or an enemy as someone who's fighting against you. Well, God's adversary, God's enemies are the ones who hear about his son and choose their sin. Whatever that sin may be. It may be morality. They may be like, oh, I'm a good person. It may look good to us all, but they're actually setting themselves up as an adversary of God. Now you say, wait, well, I'm a Christian. I don't have to worry about warnings like this. Well, why do you think the war these warnings are in the Bible? You know, I recently heard a, a preacher, Albert Martin. He's a, um, preached for a good while. He was very influential. And he said like this, the warnings in Scripture for the unbeliever are stumbling blocks on the way to hell. But for the believer, they're road signs to keep you on the right path. So when we come to warnings like this in scripture, should we say, I'm a Christian, that doesn't apply to me? No. We should say, that applies. I believe that that will happen. If I come to the knowledge of the truth and I choose my sin, that will happen to me. Therefore, I'm going to run the other direction. I'm going to cling desperately to the local church because I want to make sure I'm surrounded by people who will not let me live in my sin, not let me choose my sin over Christ. So here, in showing the severity of hearing about Christ and choosing your sin, verse 28, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. There's your three witnesses. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, Pharisees. So, brethren, like the writer tells us, 
let us consider one another. To stir up one another. To irritate. To provoke one another. To love. To good works. Let us assemble. Yes, first and foremost, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. In this place. But even outside of this, we got have Bible study. Even go to a meal together. Let us consider one another. If we see our brother or our sister choosing any sin, remember it starts small. You think of David, who at one time, his conscience was so sensitive that when he cut off a piece of Saul's robe, he exposed himself to danger to confess. But then, so many years later, he's a king now. He has his generals he can just send out. And they didn't just jump to him committing adultery and murder. No, it started with this. I have my generals. I don't need to go to battle. I don't need to be where I'm supposed to be. Starts very small. So when we see just the first hint of sin in our brothers' and our sisters' lives, let's go to them. Let's warn them about the danger that that sin can lead to. Let's stir up one another to love the good works, and much more so as we see the day approaching. Father God, I thank you for this word which has been so helpful to me over these last few weeks. I pray that it would be helpful to everyone who hears my voice, either right now or when they hear the recording. Father, might you bring about revival at one time, I think of the days of Spurgeon where people would not only crowd the church, but they would go around looking through the windows, just wanting to be a part of the assembly. Are you not the same God today? Father, but you bring about revival and a return to a desperate commitment to the local church. I pray that all of us here would grow in our desperate commitment. And we would go out to those, our friends, who profess to be Christians, and they do forsake the assembly. And rather than just dealing with the roots and, hey, you need to be in church. No, we would go and say, do you know what Jesus Christ died for?
Do you know what he requires of you? And we will deal with the roots. And that you would use that and work in their life and bring them back to the church. Father God, let none of us here walk out of this place not being changed by your word. For I know your word does not return void. May it be an act of mercy and not of hardening, oh God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.